This is the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Hello, I'm Andrew Cotter. Welcome to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton, bringing you interviews with key figures from the world of golf. Now, golf is dominated, of course, by the players, by those who hit the shots, win the titles, but there are those who are with them every step of the way, advising, motivating, consoling, celebrating together at all the key moments. They are, of course, the caddies. And for this edition of Life on Tour, I'm joined by two of the very best. John McLaren, currently motivating, consoling, celebrating in the company of Paul Casey, and also Billy Foster, long-time accomplice of Lee Westwood, but with a list of players before that stretching back to a who's who of the game, and perhaps most notably Seve. Uh, gentlemen, good morning. I'm sure. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Billy. Good morning, John. I'm sure we'll mention all of the players you've carried for. Uh, but, I mean, I want to find out how it started for you both. Because for you, from Keithley in Yorkshire, and how you can't have imagined growing up, oh, cadding, that'll be a, a life for me. So where did it start for you, Billy? I was working with my father as an apprentice joiner, 16 years old, getting £20 a week, getting sacked three times a week. Uh, and there was a European tour event, came to my home club in Bingley, 1981. And we just went along, five or six juniors from the golf club. There was no caddies in them days because there was no money in the game. And we just went along and, and, and got a job for the week. My first job was Matt's Lanner. Uh, we decided to follow a few tournaments around Britain. Uh, you know, York, Benson Edges, there was one in Leeds at the car care. And then come to Wentworth and, and a mate of mine said, let's go to Spain on a six weeks holiday and carry a few tournaments down there. So we did and I bumped into a guy called Hugh Bayoki from South Africa who took a shine to me and asked me if I wanted to come back and carry full time in 1983. So... Apprentice joiner getting sacked three times a week for 20 quid or having a bash on the tour. and I just did it to learn more about the game for myself and do a bit of travelling because you, you couldn't make a living as a caddy back then, but it was really enjoyable times. Yeah, I mean, that's going back sometime, John. When when did you start as a sort of well, as a professional caddy? Did you go 90, straight into the deep end? No, 92. My route in was slightly different. Um, I was playing golf and I ended up playing in South Africa on the Sunshine Tour and um, befriended or became friends with Roger Vessels and he'd managed, it was the first year I believe that they did the co-sanction event at the Wanderers um, and Roger finished second or third so it actually qualified him for his European card and when the, the Sunshine Tour finished he just said to me would I like to come and caddy for him during the, the summer over here with it being opposite seasons um, I was reluctant. I wasn't quite sure what it was, whether it was for me. I thought I was going to go to Canada and go and play on the Canadian tour and then said, OK, I'll give it a go. And I came over and did, did a summer with him and I enjoyed it, went back to playing um, and then eventually went back to Roger and said, I, I, you know, I'm going to caddy full time if that's all right. Uh, I mean, a lot, of the play, a lot of the caddies have been good players themselves, perhaps players who realise that they're not going to make it as a as a professional and, and decide to want to stay in golf as well so take the caddying route yeah absolutely I mean I think it's a, an asset to have been a good player I mean I think you can see shots through a player's eyes but I mean I, don't, I know you don't have to be that's the thing hmm. but, I mean when we go back to the start of your caddying career Billy we are sitting here in this glorious list of, list of players lounge here at Wentworth um, I mean, when you started, things were very different for the players, let alone the caddies, but it was hard for the caddies because uh, you were treated as not even second-class citizens. Below yeah, it, was, that. it was pretty brutal. You know, you weren't allowed in the clubhouses. Uh, 
there was no yardage books, there was no range balls, no mobile phones, no internet. Um, you couldn't afford to get on an aeroplane uh, and you stayed in the most horrendous hovels, two pound a night pensions in the back streets of Barcelona and Madrid and rats had come squealing in the middle of the night, squeal and said this ain't for those lads and leave. Uh, I've slept in bushes and you know, slept, you slept on trains from torment to torment, slept on buses and that's the way it was, you know, and you know, you'd hunt in packs, you'd be 20 or 30 guys on a train going to the next tournament and literally you'd leave 10 guys looking after the suitcases at the train station and you'd all, five or six years, wander off walking the streets trying to find somewhere to stay. You know, it was like Joseph knocking on the door and there's no room at the inn and carry on until you found somewhere. It was, it was a tough existence. Literally the worst bit, wasn't it? Dragging your suitcase around <laughs> streets trying to find something late on a Sunday night, having travelled from one tournament to the next. And suitcases didn't seem as good as they are now. They didn't have the wheels and the stroller type things. It was... But, I mean, and again, the money in the game as a whole wasn't what it is now. But, but you found your way. You mentioned Hugh Bayoki, a very good South African player, started to have a bit of success there. And then you moved on to, was it Gordon Brand Jr. after? Gordon Brand Jr. But to give you an example, I mean, we've just, some of the lads have just been to the Players' Championship um, I caddy for Tony Johnson in Portugal in 1983. and He's quite a lively character, Tony. Brilliant, absolutely hilarious. Tony Johnson, for those who don't know, is a esteemed commentator now, but a very, very good player back in the, <coughs> in the days, Zimbabwean. A uh, bit of a temper on him, is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, but a, a hilarious character. Um, can you think of any moments in particular where he was difficult to, or lively to deal with? There's a wonderful story where he played with Seve in Holland. It was a six hole at Kemmerner Golf Club, and it's a blind tee shot over the top of the hill. And the second shot, it's a dog leg round the corner, but there's a tree right on the corner, and Seve and Tony have teed off. Tony gets to the first ball, stops, uh, and the tree's right in line with the green for his second shot, so he's scratching his head. Can't get over it, can't go under it, because the rough's too long, and he's struggling to shape it, slice it or hook it round it. So he sees a sprinkler about four foot away and he nearly does the splits and just gets his left toe on it and he says to Seve, Seve, you see this sprinkler? Is there any chance I can get a drop from it? Because Seve was renowned for pushing the boundaries of the Rabbit referees. Scripts. Yeah, I mean, he bullied the referees into drops and that. He was well known for it. So Tony's waved Seve across, have a look at this, can I get a drop? Tony's thinking if I can get a club length relief from the sprinkler, I'll just be able to get round this tree, you see. So Seve comes across and he starts laughing and says, Tony, Tony, I am so sorry, eh? Because Seve's ball's 20 yards further, clear shot to the green. Tony, I am so sorry, my friend, eh? you know? You know that's not your natural stance, eh? I'm really sorry, Tony, you cannot have a drop, eh? He said, good, Seve, that's your ball, man's over there. <laughs> yeah, so stitched him right up. Yeah, yeah I mean, you carried for Tony Johnson uh, I as did. well, John. You yeah. enjoy that experience? <laughs> um, it's probably one of the best years of my life in many ways. Um, Tony's a colourful character and as you said earlier highly volatile uh, Tony had a bit of a habit of grabbing the back of his golf glove and tearing it off and then demanding his other one um, so I do recall one time at uh, I think it was Panina Golf Club uh, par 5 it was over a lake and Tony had hit his drive right down the middle and I was sort of eyeballing how far it was and Tony as you recall is an unbelievably aggressive player if he can go for it he will um, so I was looking at the yardage and I thought well 
it's on the very edge of his three wood. So I thought, well, what's the best thing to do here? I give him his yardage and I quickly grabbed a glove out of the bag, slipped it in my pocket in case we had a, a disaster. And then while I was in there, I saw another one, thought, yeah, we could do with backup. So I put another one in my other pocket and Tony, as on demand, grabbed his three wood. Um, he whacked it straight at the pin, it looked beautiful. And it just cleared the lake and then slowly trickled back into the lake. And as he'd walked about three yards forward and he grabbed hold of the back of his glove and he's like, you motherfucker!" tore it off. Um, Muddy and I, Yeah, and I quickly grabbed the other one and handed it to him and he turned in complete disbelief, put his hand on, put his glove on his hand, stood there, looked at me straight in the eyes and just tore off the next one. And I grabbed the next one out of my pocket, handed it to him, and he then was on his knees laughing. He goes, how the f*** did you know that was... I said, Tony, it's one of those things. This is you written on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's a beautiful language, Afrikaans. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first started, what were you... Were you on a sort of uh, uh, Gordon Brown? In fact, I know the figures because he's, he's sent them to us. So. Well, the first yeah. few jobs I carried, you used to get £50 for carrying, and then you got 5%. And I finished seventh with Tony Johnson in the Portuguese Open, and he won £900. So I got 45 quid. Well, the caddy pays his own expenses, so I mean, get to Portugal, pay for your hotel, your food, do all your work. An expensive bush to. You finish top in. 10 and yeah. get 45 quid for your efforts. You know, that goes to show there weren't many caddies. But the upsides of it are kind of a young man seeing the world, and then you get to, with Gordon Brand Jr., you get to go to an amazing Ryder Cup uh, in 87 in Muirfield Village. So, you know, tremendous experiences. Yeah, it was fantastic. Obviously, Gordon was. Um, he finished fourth on the money list that, the, that year, so you went from actually, you know, not seeing the future, making a living at the game, to thinking, hang on a minute, I made, I made a few thousand pounds there, I could, could almost make a living at this. But, but then you get involved in bigger tournaments, and like I said, the Ryder Cup at Murfield Village was a, a fantastic experience, and it just uh, it whet the appetite to to go and do bigger and better things in the game. We're ageing you here, but while John was still trying to make it on the Sunshine Tour as a player, you got the call. I mean, because you were thinking about, after Gordon Brandier, stepping <coughs> away from caddying, and then the call came from Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd caddied for eight years, I'd pretty much done all of Europe, and you know, I'd, I'd, my game had improved even though I wasn't playing. Um, and I travelled what I wanted to travel, and... I got offered a job as an assistant professional at Ilkley Golf Club in West Yorkshire, which is a really nice golf course. Can I just interject to say that Gordon Brand, again, in the, his contact with us, he yes. told you how much he, he paid you, but he also said that he <coughs> caddied for you once in Australia mm. and that it was just uh, appalling. Is that your recollection of it as well? Yeah, but he's also forgotten that at the Belfry, I'll never forget it, and you can ask him, you can <laughs> email him back when he shot 43 on the back nine. And I'd carried 18 holes and I had to go out and play in the caddy tournament final and shot 35. So he can get (laughs) (laughs) And beat for the edit. Excellent. No, that's fantastic. So, uh, right, we will be in contact with Gordon and we'll uh, we'll hit right back. So, yes, but anyway, so you were thinking about... I got got offered a job as an assistant pro and I accepted the job. And four weeks before I started the job, Seve Ballesteros asked me to work for him, so... Would you, have, for anyone else, would you? I mean, that's you can't turn that one down. Well, you can't because anybody of my age, Seve Ballesteros was your boyhood hero, and you know, to have the opportunity as a ten handicapper, you know, well, not a ten handicapper, but a very average player, growing up admiring 
Savvy Balasas is not only a, a golfing superstar, but a global superstar of sport. To have the opportunity to work for your boy Odero was, you had to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, John, we'll come on to it, but we have to, we've run down a Savvy route here, which we have to explore with Billy, because I think caddies, a lot of players can be can be difficult, difficult can be magical players at times, but Seve would have been, I would imagine, uh, all the highs and lows, and the highest of highs, and sometimes the lowest of lows caddying for him as well. Very much so, because when I started caddying for him, his, his, his game had gone into decline a bit, and it was a proper Ronan key in life's a roller coaster. Like, you know, it was, he played brilliant for three months, and then he'd play like me for 12 months. It was incredible, you know. He, you know, he would miss 10 or 12 cuts and then he'd come back. He played four tournaments in a row. He, he won the Chinuchi Crowns in Japan. He got beaten in a playoff in Spain. He won here at Wentworth and he won the British Masters at Woburn in four weeks. So he went first, tied first, first, first in four weeks. And that's the way it was. He played brilliant for short spells and then he played absolute dirt for six months. And how was he as a, as a person? Because, again, he was, I suppose, quite, quite a volatile character. He was a Spaniard, didn't he? Latino, feisty characters, aren't they? And uh, stubborn, never wrong. Uh, the player is always right, Billy. You're a son of my <laughs> you have to listen. Eh? I'm always right. There's been no arguing on the golf course, eh? So you had to uh, take a few on the chin, but the Yorkshire Terrier in me came out and I fought fire with fire. And, you know, if you lasted five minutes with seven, you did all right. So five years was a good effort, but eventually the Terrier bit too hard and I got sacked. Yeah for speaking my mind too much. I mean, that seems to be a, a sort of occupational hazard of being a caddy, is that you're never too far, it's like being a football manager in the relegation zone, you're never too far away from... Without the payoff. Without the payoff, <laughs> without the big Sam Allardyce payoff. But you're never too far away from the job. It's quite a, a fragile existence at times as well. I mean, you two have been very successful, but everybody out there is, knows that you know, the, the end might not be too far away. Carry on, John. <laughs> Um, I, don't, I don't know whether to say this or not. I'm yet to be sacked. You have sacked. Well, interestingly, because you, um, we'll, we'll come on to your relationship with Luke Donald and, and other players as well, but you actually ended your relationship with Luke Donald. I mean, that was a, quite a strong decision to make. Yeah, um, not an easy decision, um, but I felt at the time it was the right one for both of us. Um, I felt that I'd perhaps taken him as far as I could with my skills and... His game wasn't quite what it was, and he, he seemed like he needed something fresh, and I wasn't sure that I was bringing it anymore. It kind of, I, I asked my wife, basically, if I'd turned somewhat grey in the, in the last sort of six to eight months, and she was like, how do you mean? And I said, when you look at me, am I brightly coloured or am I grey? And she's like, you're a bit grey, sorry. And I'm like, okay, right, work's taken its toll, and I realised that, I needed to change for me as much as anything and um, I mean I feel bad about it because loyalty's you know a wonderful quality um, but I just I knew it was time to move and I guess I hoped it would it would help Luke reignite some of his career. Well I mean tell us about the difficult because you touched upon it there about the the stresses of being a caddy because people a lot of people who don't know caddying will see the old view of caddies oh you turn up you carry the bag and that's it but it's it's so much more than that in terms of you're sort of living the stress but it's a, it's a powerless existence because you just watch them hit the shots but you you have the stresses that they have as well and it must be a, a, I say quite a a nerve-wracking um, nerve-wracking job at so many times yeah I think that that's how you end up valuing your own self though I mean I, I view 
my job as being one that I'm trying to eke out every every percentage of improving a player. So that's how I go into the job. I mean, not everyone does, but to me, I think if I'm going to try and make Paul Casey the best player he can be, that's going to come at a cost and going to have to think about everything rather than just turning up. So, you know, I, I just view that as as the job. Yeah. Well, I mean, Billy, we talk about, we've made the comparison between a caddy and a football manager, and football managers, a good football manager will recognise that some players need a pat on the back, an arm around the shoulder, and some need a, a rocket. So, I, of all players, list, list some of the players you've uh, carried for. So, Hugh Barkey, Gordon Brown Jr., Seve, of course, Darren, Thomas Bjorn, Garcia, Tiger, briefly. Some psychos in that list. Well, exactly, <laughs> that's what I was about to say. And John's on about being there. Look at me, I'm a badger. I mean, there are some, let's just say, strong characters in there. Some, I mean, my goodness, there are some temperaments. So, how do you deal with the, the different personalities in there? You learn to adapt with each player. Each player is completely different. Some players like it to say certain things. Other players detest it. But you find out very quickly, within a day or two, we're starting to carry for a bloke, and you have to adapt accordingly. Um, you know, Lee Westwood out there is pretty tranquilo. You know, he's uh, you have a laugh and a joke, and you know he's on the same wavelength, same sense of humour. And every day going to work's quite easy. You get other blokes. You know, the way the spikes on the inside, you know, the angry men, like, you know, and mm. they're looking to blame. You know, if it's left or right, it's the caddy's fault. You know, if it's long or, long or short, it's a, you know, if it's, sorry, if it's long or short, it's the caddy's fault. So if it's left or right, it's the coach's fault. And if it isn't their fault, the wife's the wife's fault. It's never theirs. So you're saying angry men, and I'm looking at the list, and I, it doesn't really narrow it down on <laughs> the list here. Let's go, I mean, let's go to another one you carry for, Thomas Bjorn, because you you got to forget... Forget who you've carried for, but, but that would be 2003 at St George's when. I've Bjorn... just got over that. I just <laughs> forgot about that. One. Well, that's the there, thing Thomas, because he still wakes up in the, the night about it. But uh, I, again, Thomas Bjorn, the bunker on the on the 16th, the par three, leading the Open Championship, and at that stage there, you say you've just only just got over it. I mean, it's so difficult to to take. But it, was there anything you you couldn't say anything to to a player after that's happened, could you? I actually said at the Irish Open the week after he would, he would he said if you seen the draw for the first round, he says yes, you're playing with John Vandervelde and Doug Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, now there's a lot. Of you, I've been out that morning at six o'clock in the morning, walking the golf course and looking at the flags, and I got to that 16th hole, which was pretty much the easiest hole on the golf course out there. I mean, you five foot to the right of the pin, and it was disaster. Or you'd half a Kent to the left. Um, you know, and I'd looked at that bunker, there seemed to be a foot more sand in that bunker and you know, it was a false front, you had to get it 15 foot to the top of the hill. It was just a horrible place to be and then when we got to the tee, I just said Thomas here at the TV tower, middle of the green, nowhere else, which was like 30 feet left and you know, you don't mean to hit straight the flag but it's set off straight the flag and I was screaming no as it was going off the end of the tee, I knew where it was going and you know, when the second one come back and finished six inches deep in his footprint, I wanted to be sick in the middle of the green because I just, the low pack butter, the Danish low pack butter in his hands, he dropped the planet jug right there in the 16th green. It broke me out. I mean, and I thought about it every day for six months. Really? I mean, would that be the lowest moment in your career? Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. yeah. What about highs? Let's lift the tone. What about highs? I mean, the greatest moment. As I say, because you do live the moments with the players, so what would be the greatest moment for you and your. your Listen, there's been many great moments, you know, winning this championship with Seve Ballesters and, you know, Darren Clark beating Tiger Woods when he was the top of his powers. He Westwood winning the race to Dubai and, and, and the Dubai World Golf Championship on the same day, etc. But the Ryder Cups have been my most special moments. And, and with Darren Clark at the K Club in 2006, with all that had gone on with Heather passing away and him, you know, 
stood there on the 16th green, hugging him in tears. Having won the Ryder Cup was no money in it, but that's that'd be the the one memory that I cherish more than anything. I would say. Do you become? I suppose it varies from player to player, but do you become friends with a player, or is there always a sort of employer employee or just work colleague delineation between the two, or do you become friends with the players? My, my own personal, I become friends with the players. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, at the end of the day, don't get me wrong. You want you want to put that flag stick in and go your own way. And at that time, you don't want to be having dinner with them every night, but you do have dinner with them now and again. But yeah, you are mates out there. You, you're you in a partnership out there and you want the best for each other. So, yeah, you have to be mates. John, are you, uh, again, the variety of caddies, some players want someone that they just feel comfortable with. Others want someone who's strong enough to step in on occasion. Do you, have you, you name a particular shot, but have there been occasions where you've said, no, that's not the, the right shot? You've got to be pretty strong as a caddy to, to, you know, in your own mind and make the decision at the right time. Yeah, I think so. I think a uh, strong character goes a long way out here. I mean, obviously it can, as Billy say, it can certainly hurt you too because uh, you can overstep the mark, apparently according to them, yeah. whether you realise it or not. Um, Do you have to let a lot of stuff wash over you as well with what the players say? Just I think to... you have to. Uh, I mean, Billy touched on it. I mean, the biggest quality I think that a caddy can have out here is how quickly they adapt. So it's not the fact that they do adapt, it's how quickly you do it. And as Billy said, you know, there's every player slightly different and you have a new relationship with them that another caddy didn't have. You know, it's all brand new and you've got to quickly figure out what are the keys to help and what are the ones that you definitely avoid. Um, you know, I certainly know Paul has a, a decent history of being a caddy disliker, shall we say. Um, <laughs> There's Paul Casey, your current employer. He can add me right? yeah. to that list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he should be added to the difficult player list here. So we, at you know, times, yeah. at times he's well, no, exactly. He's tamed him. He's tamed him. He's, tamed him. he's found the key to the cage, have not you, John? Exactly. Um, Listen, you're you're, you're risking. We have a uh, we have a relationship that's working. You're threatening your I've never been sacked. Uh, standing <laughs> here, don't worry, you you'll sack him as you. But that's uh, well, it's interesting though because players, golfers are. It's a sort of individual sport. It's uh, you've got to be. They have got to be sort of quite egocentric as well. So you've got to work around their fragilities. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's like being a father. You know, in many ways, you you pick out the time when to him and the time to give him a hug mm. um, and that's often how it works and more often than not the hug comes straight after the if you're doing a good job because it's like right I've got my point across it seems to have gone in now let's sit there and say right we can move forward with this come on you're the best you buy him a pizza and take him off the Lego exactly yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah essentially I mean we are dealing with young children essentially yeah exactly no you I mean you you going back before Luke and before Paul obviously you were Duffy Waldorf so um colorful colorful well you're known for your colorful I wonder when did the sock thing start because you're known as Johnny Long Socks um, because you always <laughs> you're wearing some uh, for those just listening today you can see uh, some dark blue light blue stripes and uh, matching shoes so when did this kick in? Uh, actually I got my legs burnt in a fire um, when I was younger and for the whole summer I wasn't allowed allowed to have my legs exposed to the sun according I, I to the doctor I thought it was going to be a funnier story than this. no this is truth um, and I was playing tennis all through the summer so I wore long socks oh, and then when I went to the States, everyone wore short socks, so everyone said, oh no, you've got to start wearing short socks, and I'm like, uh-uh, and in fact that means I'll wear longer ones and pull them up higher. You're so I didn't, I didn't want to conform. Yeah. <laughs> rebel against the system. Um, Billy, tell us about 
Tiger because you can't do far. I mean, not, it was briefly when uh, was it when Steve was in Steve Williams on sabbatical. Or, uh, uh, Steve's wife had a baby and he he was taking a couple of weeks off, so Tiger picked on me to do the President's Cup while he had the week off. So how was that experience? I know it's the you know the President's Cup. It's not uh, you know Tiger caddying for Tiger, you know one of his major wins, but to be uh, close to that. That man must be quite something. Yeah, it was uh, it was a great experience, uh, and the one thing I, I, I took from it was he was an absolute gentleman. To be quite honest, everything he said, and I, I try and instill it in my children that you know you don't get anything without saying please and thank you. And he said please and thank you to every 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 time he spoke, which impressed me. The one thing I would say it's the only guy in the thirty odd years I've carried that I felt that aura about that bloke, and the only other guy I've ever is Seve Ballesteros. Mm. And I almost feel as though when Seve lost his game in 95, who came along in 96, and it was like, to me, the baton was passed over to Tiger was from Seve Ballesteros. And I genuinely felt sorry for Tiger, you know. When, he, when you're walking through the thousands of people, 10 deep, and they're screaming and screaming and screaming, and his ears are ringing, you know. It's, and I got to the tranquility of the first tee, and he came up, and it was just me and him. I said, you know, that's the first time I've felt that experience of being with somebody since... Seve Ballesteros, you know, and I genuinely know what you go through because you might be the best player that ever lives, you might be, have any woman in the world and you might be a billionaire, but I wouldn't swap your lines. Really? And he, he sort of like looked straight through me and more or less thanked me for it. He, underst- he Finally, somebody understood what his life's all about. Yeah. Very I mean, difficult. It's interesting, the comparison he moved in Tiger and Seve, and as you say, you were with Seve where he still had some highs but he was sort of on the, the downward slope which must have been very difficult because he had back problems and all sorts of ailments when you see a great player struggling to do what he once did how does a caddy cope with that? Yeah well Seve went away from being the most naturally gifted golfer maybe ever to a guy that had more coaches than Wallace Arnold you know he just he, he had a different he asked a different person going down the range every five minutes so how to swing a golf club, and he just got far too technical. And you know, you get him in the middle of the trees, and he'd pull off a wonderful shot because he just had this imagination to see the shot. And when he was in the middle of the fairway, he went to all technical and thinking about his positions of his swing. And you can't play golf like that. You can't play golf thinking about swing thoughts. You've you got to do your work before you start playing the tournament. You can't be thinking too technical on the golf course. It's interesting because you see players as we don't see them. You see them, you're with them most of the day, but you see, you see their, um, their weaknesses and more their human side, and whereas you know, we sometimes see them as superhuman uh, players and they, they can do no wrong. But you, uh, you must see them when they're quite vulnerable as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're all skin and bones and blood like us. You know, they're human beings. They're all normal people. Uh, just because they can hit a golf ball better than us doesn't make them... Think any different? They're pretty uh, fragile, actually. Very they? fragile characters, yeah. You know, very volatile, and yeah, if they feel they've lost it, that's it. Absolutely. It's, There's not many gone. people can tell them the honest truth, mm. looking them in the eyes, and I, I like to think the caddies are one of the few people that really do tell them the truth, and that's why they get sacked a lot. <laughs> yeah, but but also that's why caddies have to be quasi psychologists. That's almost part of your is to absolutely is yeah. to know, as you say, know when to, to cut through the nonsense and give them a, a as you say. A but also know when to, to try and build them up. And the last thing you say before they hit a shot has to be a sort of positive. It's all positivity. Yeah, and you can feel their mood. You know, if you're doing a good job, you can sense where they're at and when to say, come on, we've got this. You know, because everyone will try to say you've got to live in the moment and you've got to eat shot one at a time. 
I mean, we all know the reality is you can't, it's pretty much impossible to do that. You all have a good understanding. You can see leaderboards, you know where you are in tournaments, you know how they're swinging it and you know which flags they can and can't go at. So you're feeling it all the way through. Um, and then when you're with them, it's recognising, as Billy said, you know, he, he knew 16 there with Thomas Bjorn, you can't be at that pin. He knew it. He hoped it would work. His 30 foot left, mate, that's all you got to do. And probably at the time, you were pretty confident he was going to pull the shot off. Yeah, he had missed the shot all day. So, you know, there's not, on occasion, there doesn't feel like there's much you can do. And on other occasions, you're thinking, you know, that's really sound advice. And they latch onto it and you, and you pull off things. I always feel that, uh, and I've done a bit of lower level caddying, but it's that feeling of powerlessness as they hit the shots because you've done all you can and it's just that moment of hoping that it's, it's going to be right. It's just... Uh, it's it only one... really happens over water, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> I mean, is there one... Uh, can, can you single out moments in the career where it has just... You've been right on the edge and it's just been a great shot and, uh, or ones where it's just... I can think of one that I... I did at the time. Would I do it now? Not a chance. I wouldn't have the bottle to do it now. But I was caddying for Seve at St. Melian. He had a two-shot lead playing the last. And the second shot was over water to a front left pin. And he's got a two-shot lead. I'm thinking, well, just hit it right half of the green where there was no water. Three puts and you win the tournament. End of. But you know it's Seve Bellas here, so he's going to knock the flag out. So I give him the yardage. I can see it now, 187 metres, which is like 205 yards into a little bit of breeze, right on the limit for a five iron for him. And I knew he'd want to hit a five iron. He said, Billy, how far we have? I said, he got 194 metres. I gave him a seven metre mystery, longer, so, he, so he'd hit the four iron. So he hit the four iron, went in the car park out of bounds over the green. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he finished 15 foot behind the hole and he won the tournament, which was, would you say, a great caddy or you know, bottle? I did it anyway, but it's like, and I nudged him in the fairway and told him, and he, I think he wanted to rip my head off like, but he won the tournament, I got away with it, but I, God, I don't think I could do that now. Did you have some cracking arguments with Seve? Oh, yeah, I mean, we went at it big time. Like, I mean, he used to bite his grips, tears running down his face. He's punched him. He actually loosened his tooth going up the eighth fairway at Augusta one time. He snapped up to forward in the trees, and I heard this almighty slap. I thought, what's that? He punched himself so hard in the face, he loosened his tooth like, but we, yeah, we used to go at it like arguing. Well, ultimately, that's why we finished because I was in a straight jacket coming off the coming off the golf course on the Friday, or whatever, and we went to the front of the clubhouse. I didn't I need a word with, and I just unleashed this five-minute tirade of abuse, shouting and screaming at him. And once it had all come out, it had all, all the pressure had gone, like you know, but. I obviously overstepped the mark because that was it. <laughs> but, yeah, Four I mean, minutes was acceptable. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you obviously remained, you know. No, I remained great friends with him. You yeah. were a pallbearer, were you not? At his, uh, <coughs> yeah. At his funeral. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it goes out saying tremendously, tremendously sad the story of Seve ultimately. But you, I presume that your moments with him remain the highlights. Whoever you carry for and whatever you achieve, your moments with Seve remain pretty much the highlights. Yeah, I mean, I've got some lovely memorabilia and some lovely letters. Text messages, you know, and, and letters that his brother sent after the funeral, just saying what he thought about me, which was really humbling and really nice to have, you know, and I'll cherish them forever. 
John, what are your, your high points from your career so far? Because I'm sure there's a lot to go. I look at Billy and sometimes I think, well, Billy's... I'm finished, that's yes, what you said. <laughs> Billy's finished. What about you, John? What about you, John? You've got a long way to go. A young, vital man. What are, no, I mean, what are your high points of your career so far? Um, I've been fortunate enough to win this tournament three times. Uh, that's definitely See, a high point. I love the way I've been, I've been fortunate enough to win it because it is, uh, you, you know, you've played the part and you'll take the victory. Yeah, that, that was with Luke, Luke obviously. Uh, once with Anders Hansen and of twice course, with Luke. Of course, 2007? Yeah. Uh, that was, uh, would he be on the difficult list as well? I think Anders would probably qualify for that. Um, Anders would be on the Danish list. Okay. Um, so All difficult. Yeah, All you can... Thomas is Thomas, Yeah, you can take that as you like. Um, yeah, Anders, he wasn't difficult to me, um, he's difficult to himself. Um, <laughs> you know, he just has to abuse himself. If he's not abusing himself, there's something wrong. Um, that was actually my first week with him that we won here. Uh, and he was extremely complimentary of my caddying skills that week. Um, I seem to recall it raining, and he was wearing a, a, a jersey that by the end was sort of down almost at his knees. Yeah, like, that's about right. Yeah. Either that or he was slowly getting smaller I can't quite tell um, but yeah he he's actually a, a great lad he's one of the really funny individuals away from golf um, and you were saying earlier about staying friends um, I actually had Duffy Anders and Luke at my wedding so I stay friends with all of the guys and uh, it's like Harry and Megan yeah maybe um, and Anders is away from golf an absolutely fantastic character uh, but at golf, he, yeah, it gets to him. Yeah, I think we're going to go summing up golf. But yeah, three wins here. That one. Uh, Ryder Cup as well. Obviously, what are you, what are you on now, Billy? Thirteen. Thirteen, yeah. And so you're going to this one as well. You'll be at this. Well, that won't count. You don't count them unless you I'm going, but I won't be carrying at this stage. So yeah, you never exactly. know. Well, you never know exactly. So highlights in particular from the Ryder Cup. You mentioned 2006. The 87 Muirfield Village, the first time Europe managed to win in America, was excellent. Uh, yeah, I mean, 2002. Catching Tiger Woods in the toilet with no toilet paper, that was that was a highlight. <laughs> well, there you go. You brought it in nicely because your experience in a gentleman's restroom with Tiger Woods. Tell us. Yes, it was uh, the Ryder Cup at the Belfry. First morning, first match was Dan and Clark and Thomas Bjorn playing Tiger Woods and Paul Lerzinger. So I've got to the putting green, quarter to eight. Eight o'clock, first tea time. I said to Darren, Darren, the old flock of seagulls are flapping. I said, I need to go for a Tom Kite. I'll be back in a minute. So into the toilets. Imagine being one of the great golfers of all time, yeah. first of all, with Tom Kite, <laughs> and you're now rhyming slang. So excellent. Yeah, so I've sat down in cubicle number one, trolleys around the ankles, just about to give it the full frost morning glory, and I look to the side, ooh, full reverse, no toilet paper. So I've come out of the cubicle, walked straight across, trapped two, straight across the corridor, and there's Davis Love, the third caddy in there. Cubby, how are you doing? So I sit down, 20 rolls of toilet paper behind me, no problem. Next minute, spikes on the bathroom floor. Morning, cubby. Morning, tiger. Bang. Trap one where I've just come from. Well, I'm crying now. Because I've just got this vision in my head. A tiger woods walking up the fifth, like John Wayne that's just got off his horse. <laughs> and I thought, I'm crying. I'm using the toilet, excess toilet paper in my cubicle to dry the tears in my eyes. I'm crying, laughing at them, and biting my knuckles. So anyway, I come out, and as I'm walking past this cubicle, it's now six minutes to tee off, and I hear this little sigh. <laughs> he realises there's no toilet paper. And I thought, 
you know what, I can't do it too. So I walked back to my cubicle, rolled off about 20 sheets, folded them up, got down on my hands and knees and went under his toilet door and said, whoever's in there, you might be needing this. And as he grabbed it, I went, you're up, what up? And walked out. And sure enough, we beat him one up. <laughs> and uh, he came out with the biggest smile on his face. Obviously, I told everybody on the putting green. And I got you owe me, Tiger Woods, and he held his hands up and said, Billy Foster, I owe you big time. And I think that's why I got the job for the President's Cup, not because I'm a good caddy. No, exactly, because he was your thrall. So there we go, I'll never look at Tiger Woods in the same way. Or indeed, Tom Kite. <laughs> Tom Kite. Uh, excellent. Um, John, John Ryder, cut memories. Any Tiger Woods stories like that? Uh, <laughs> I don't, funny enough, no. Um, the Ryder Cup does things to carry, because we, we've seen it before with uh, caddies on both sides getting so wrapped up in it <coughs> as, as well, maybe particularly on the American side of things, but uh, the caddy, get, do you get as involved and, and caught up in the atmosphere of it as the, as the players? Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience, but it's, it, I'll be honest with you, I think it's a very difficult week. Um, it's a bit like uh, trying to put a thoroughbred horse into a little box. They don't like going in there, and these these guys, when they're 12 against 12 and everyone's watching, they're as twitchy as you'll ever see them. Um, you've got to be perfect, and if you're not, it's all your fault. Uh, they tend to, or from my experience, I found that Luke would go quieter and quieter as the pressure built, which meant... Is that possible with Luke? I, don't know. I know, he's uh, <laughs> Mute Donald. Um, He's just communicating yeah, through mime by the end. Of but the in the end, you just had to make every decision for him. Yeah. And that's not exactly an enjoyable decision to make a lot of the time. Um, we touched on best clubs. I remember at Celtic Manor playing against Jim Furyk in the singles. And was it 16, the par 3, or 17? 17. 17. And the pins in the middle of the green, middle tier, and he just stood at the back of the tee. He goes, what is it? And I said, uh, right, well, these are the numbers. I rattled out the numbers. He said, I don't care about that. What club is it? I said, well, it's a four-iron loop. And he said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. Um, of course, in the meantime, I wasn't exactly sure. You just sort of hoping you're sure. And then he said, if you put me over this green, you and I are done. And I'm like, no pressure. okay, no. then. Um, well, I'm still sure it's a four-iron, so how about it, mate? And I wandered to the edge of the tee and thought, wow, I could be done in a minute because I know that this four iron's on the edge. It's, you know, it could go long. And he hit it to about a foot. And I walked out. I, I was expecting him to come over and say, good job there. And he just walked off the tee, getting all the applause. I stood again. Oh, well done, Luke. Yeah, shot me. So you buried that away and you thought, right, no, no, <laughs> I'm going to get you back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh no, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear about the, the Ryder Cup in those instances yeah. in terms of, because again, we just don't see it. We see little, we see little whispers and wonder what you're suggesting to, to, to the players. Medina was incredible too, wasn't it? Well, I was lying on the sofa at home with a broken leg, so yeah, I missed that one. <laughs> incredible <laughs> on TV, I heard that one. <laughs> yeah. I didn't watch it. <laughs> that was actually <laughs> no, quite I a did, yeah, tricky time for you, because yeah. you injured your, uh, was that playing snap football? snapped my ACL, yeah. So, that's because, another story. Well, it is another story, but hey, it's a story for now. Because it's a story. At, at that time, you know, you had to be let go by, or Lee took another caddy on, and then, but the the relationship ended, and then you went back. It was like a sort of separation in a marriage, as I think you put it, and then oh, you got yeah, back together. Oh, yeah, like to somebody. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He left me for another woman, didn't he? Teach me, but came back. True love came back in the end. But that's the the point again about caddying, because it it, it, it can be quite a brutal existence out there. Yeah, there's, uh, it is, that's the exact word, it's brutal. Uh, 
Would you recommend it to, and again, we're talking to you two who are very successful caddies, but would you recommend it to someone to get into to caddying now? Because there, there's a lot of, it's very different to, again, going back to the 80s when you're sleeping in bushes and camper vans and but it's still very hard out there to make a successful living. Yeah, it's changed massively out here, and you can make a good living as a caddy these days, but it's still, it is a tough existence, isn't it, John? And the, it's yeah, the hardest thing to get into now, though. Yeah, sure. I mean, like Billy said, you used to just turn up at an event, stand at the car park, wait for someone, and they'd go, what are you doing? Yeah, jump on the bag. Whereas now, I mean, to work for a top-class player, actually, I wouldn't know how to advise someone to get. No. Yeah, I mean, you just literally caddy for somebody. Miss the cut and then get another job with somebody else for the weekend, regularly in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't imagine you'd trade it for any other. I won't trade it for anything. It's been a fantastic life. Um, we've been very lucky people. You know, me and John have both been quite successful with, or lucky. You know, with certain players we've carried for, and uh, I won't swap it for the world. It's been a fantastic experience. What do you still hope to achieve in the? In the game, really saying a nice quiet retirement or something like that, or other things to yeah, do. Your goal is, I mean, my goal is, you know, you've been very successful in Cardiff guys, won 40 odd tournaments and more Ryder Cups, but that elusive major's not there, and you'd love to sneak one before you hang your boots up. But well, we mentioned whether. Thomas Bjorn at, at St George's, but I suppose the near miss and, and Lee Westwood had a string of very, very close. They had a lot. Turnberry, Turnberry were the one that got away, really. You know, he. He bogeyed 15, 16, birdied 17 in bogeyed. He three-putted the last to miss out by a shot, which was, you know, that was heartbreaking, really, because he played fantastic golf that week. Uh, that would be the one, you know, obviously a couple of masters that got away with Mickelson's incredible shot out of the trees. And, you know, when Danny won, Lee, arguably should have, you thought he was going to step up to the plate and win that one, but um, it got away again. But, you know, he's had more... Well, I think nine or ten top three finishes in majors is the most by three or four that hasn't actually won one. So he's still up. He might be able to kick one over the line, but as every year goes past, it gets more and more difficult because these kids are coming through thick and fast and all bombing it 340 yards. So it's very, very difficult. And I'm sure it would annoy you when you see, because you've been there at the sort of sharp end of things with someone like leave when people say oh yeah you know, he can't can't quite cross the line of the majors or he can't deliver under pressure because it was never really down to to pressure with, with no, it's down to me I'm, I'm just a jinx <laughs> exactly <laughs> I should have, uh, yes but in terms of you John thinking about going forward I mean what would you like to achieve in the in the game uh, my close friends uh, Gareth Lord and um, and Mark Fulcher uh, working for Stenson and Justin Rose they're the people I spend most of my time with and Scott Vale who used to work for Brant Snedeker and we sort of joust amongst ourselves about our careers and um, both uh, Stenson and Rose having won a major and I haven't um, I remind them that they've never caddy for a number one in the world or necessarily you know so we have a the battle of who can have the full hand the full deck which we call the FedEx Cup having a major and being number one in the world. If you can have them three cars, you've had a pretty good career. And none of us have got the full hand yet. So, you know, for me, I look at the FedEx Cups that have got away, and there's been three of them. Um, majors, I genuinely thought Luke was going to win at Merion. Um, I thought that the course and where he was at with his game was about perfect. And... I was in the group with Rose and Mark Fulcher when Justin did win. 
Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're the things that drive me personally. Is there still a camaraderie between the caddies? I think I know the answer to this, but uh, uh, and if, if there is, who, who are the caddies? You mentioned some of the names there, but who are the caddies that you would hang around with and, uh, and sort of travel with? And do you travel together and pool your resources, or has that changed as well? well it's a mixed bag of tricks with me. You know, sometimes I travel a lot on my own, and you know, other times it'd be Teddy Mundy that caddies for Polter, Dominic that caddies for Toby on Olsen, um, Bobbly sometimes, who's caddy for everybody. Mad as a box of frogs, like you know. But uh, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful characters out here, and you know, it's it's uh, it's a great camaraderie out here, you know. And you've got to have a bit of a thick skin out here because the lads will crucify you if you make a mistake, you know. Tint about you upsetting your boss because you've made a mistake. It's the month's abuse you're going to get off the caddies for, you know, if you play a wrong ball or something stupid like that. It's uh, the dog's abuse that you get. It's pretty cruel, like, but. It's all in good jest. And do you get treated well? We talked about how the improvements in the, the caddies' life and a different world to what it used to be, but do you get treated well enough as professional people and quite highly paid people at times? Has that, that, that improved enough? In my opinion, yeah, but I've come from... Yeah. The <laughs> bush. Know, I've gone from council house to penthouse, like, so to me, we get treated really, really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that the US is still a little bit behind if you ask me I see the European yeah, tour they you know they try to embrace us more as part of the game whereas the US still seems to want to have segregation in it they, you know we're not allowed in clubhouses or locker rooms and I understand that's down to the players the players don't want us in the locker rooms that's what I keep hearing but whether there's any truth in that yeah. I don't know I don't know either I mean that might be down to about three or four that have decided it and they're on the committee and yeah. that's it yeah We'll ask them. Right, final yeah. questions to you. I want to ask, and again, you've mentioned a couple of shots, but the best shot you've seen any of your players hit, you can have a think about that, John. We'll come to Billy. Well, so it's obvious. I mean, it's Seve's uh, shot in Switzerland was beggar's belief. Uh, to have the imagination. What year was this again? Uh, 1993, so it's 25th anniversary this year. It's incredible, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, so take us through it. Well, he was five shots off the lead with six holes to play and he birdied 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17 to tie for the lead and then slashed a three-wood 60 yards right off the last tee behind an eight-foot wall. His ball was probably seven foot from the wall. He had to get it up over an eight-foot wall and hitting towards 10 o'clock, but over the top of the wall it was just full of fir trees, no shot. And to have the imagination to even envisage playing a shot is one thing. And these players these days will just chip it out and chip it on, like, you know. And I begged him at least three times, just chip it out, wedge it on, you can still make par and win the tournament. No, why I listen to you? Why you put doubt in my mind, you son of my <laughs> Go get the yardage, yeah? So I've gone, I promise you, I went to the edge of the fairway, didn't even get a yardage, just looked at the flag and went, ah, 140 will do. So I've come back, I said, 140. <laughs> OK, give me the pitching wedge, eh? I'm like, look. I know you're Seve Balasius, but you're not effing Paul Daniels. Just chip it out, will you? Why? Why I listen to you? Why you put doubt in my mind, you son of my <laughs> You carry the bag, get on, get away. And he's, I'm like, tripping over my bottom lip, like, walking away. And he's absolute 80 yards away. And he hits his shot, and the dust flies. I'm expecting it to hit the wall, come back and plug between his eyes and kill him, like. And more importantly, I'm going to lose my percentage money, but anyway, the ball dust everywhere, ball, I don't hit it, hit the trees and it appears over this wall and as it's a hundred foot in the air sailing over these four eighty foot pine trees in the air I'm thinking this is the best shot that's ever been in, to have the imagination, never pull it, never mind pull it off and 
It landed a yard short of the green. Just goes to show if I give him the right yardage, he might have knocked it on. But, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It shouldn't have been vague about the one. Yeah, and then he chips it in for birdie, so I had to get down my hands and knees and bow to him, calling him godlike, you know. But that, uh, that was an incredible golf shot. So now, John, you've got Duffy or Anders or Luke or Paul to try and follow that. Can you think of any one particular shot that. Yeah, I, I would say uh, Medina, 17. Oh, I thought it was going to be something from Duffy. Oh. Uh, he had a number of good shots. Um, but yeah, the Medina shot 17 with Luke playing against Tiger in the foursomes and Tiger had hit it to about seven feet just behind the flag. The wind was straight off the right. Caddy's nightmare over water. Couldn't tell whether it was helping or hurting. Luke was in mute zone. Um, and <laughs> I'm looking there thinking, if, we, if we, um, Sergio. So it's like seven iron, six iron, eight iron, seven iron, six, going through all the emotions of those three clubs. And eventually went back and said, look, it's seven iron, just aim just a bit right of the flag and hit a draw, it'll be perfect. And he stood up and hit one of the most beautiful seven irons you'll ever see to about a foot. And it was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing shot. Everyone was on edge and the crowd just went absolutely crazy. And just to step one inside Tigers there was, was really special. Yeah. Makes up for not getting a percentage that week. So that's yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Listen, thank you for talking to us, gentlemen. It has been fascinating, and again, just getting an insight into because sometimes the players will get some stories, but they never tell the truth. So we get the truth from the caddy. So thank you very much indeed to, <laughs> yeah, to very John welcome. McLaren truth, and so. Billy Foster. Uh, John, we wish you many happy years on tour, and Billy, whatever you. Happy are. retirement. Happy yeah, retirement. Yeah, good luck with that, Billy. Cheers. We'll give you a carriage clock. You've been listening to the Life on Tour podcast with John McLaren and Billy Foster. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.